I never lose sight of the marker that it should feel good and you should be sleeping. And if that's not happening, then something's wrong. So firstly, I want to welcome the new listeners to the show. And also, I'm very grateful to you long-term listeners of this podcast for supporting the show. I'd like to hear from you. Is there someone that you would like me to interview? Or is there a topic that you would like me to do a solo episode and kind of deep dive into the research on? You can let me know by heading over to the platform you're listening on and leaving a review and in there writing in what you'd like to hear from us on or who you'd like us to interview and we will do our very best to fulfill that request. In this week's Bite Size Biohacks, I am sharing a clip from my interview with the amazing Dr. Lara Bryden. We talk about stress, hormones, PCOS, insulin resistance and sleep just in this short clip. Now, if you'd like to listen to the full episode, it is episode 102. Dr. Lara is an, was an incredible guest and her books are absolutely brilliant. Both the period repair manual and the hormone repair manual are like Bibles on my own bookshelves. And I'll link to both of those books in the show notes below this episode. Enjoy this. And if you'd like to listen to the full interview, it's episode 102. But in women with things like PCOS, this is likely to have a bit more of a resurgence, is it, in terms of her ability to manage blood sugar during those perimenopausal years? Yeah. Is that right? And, yes. And so, and also just to clarify, insulin resistance is about having chronically elevated insulin, the hormone insulin. That's actually how I test for it is to measure the hormone. So you've got the double whammy of with insulin resistance, you've got the situation that this, the cells in the body everywhere, in particular the brain in this case, are not getting the energy they need because as you say, insulin is just kind of shuttling it into fat rather than allowing it into cells. Um, so the, that's where you get this, um, what they've measured actually is a 25% reduction in brain energy in some of the later phases of perimenopause and the shift to insulin resistance. So the brain needs to be able to burn ketones as an alternative. And when, there's, when you have insulin resistance, it's difficult to have that what's called metabolic flexibility to burn ketones as an alternative to glucose. When we're healthy, we can do both. We can burn glucose. We can The cells can switch back and forth. That's all happening in the mitochondria. And with chronically elevated insulin, insulin resistance, that's not happening. And to answer your question about women with a history of PCOS, it's a few things. It's, it's If you have a history of PCOS, you likely have a history of insulin resistance because as you know, those they sort of go hand in hand, although not always. Also, tending to higher androgens or male hormones generally increases insulin resistance. So um, we all of us have different levels of it. It's normal to have some androgens or testosterone and women have different levels of that. But if it starts to, to be in the category of you know, tending to higher levels, that can be a risk, a metabolic risk factor. And that can... Um, come through in our forties again. So that's why I just think it's in my analysis and with my patients, the simplest thing is not to guess, just to test for insulin resistance, which I do by testing insulin. And also the other clues of insulin resistance would be things like high triglycerides on a blood test. Um, especially if the other sort of markers are kind of normal, high ALT on a liver function test, um, skin tags, and abdominal weight gain, that, the weight gain around the waist. Mm. 
If you enjoy this podcast, visit femalebiohacker.com and be part of a special community of women looking to optimize their mind, body, and spirit. If you're tired of sifting through countless websites and books to find the answers to your questions about nutrition, fitness, hormones, mindset, spirituality, and biohacking, the search is over. I've done the research for you and every week we go live with in-depth masterclasses, Q&A calls and monthly challenges to help you transform your life. And when you join the collective, you'll have access to a wealth of information, including deep dive masterclasses and biohacking toolkits on our members' favorites like metabolic flexibility, gut health, stress and resiliency and stepping into your most empowered self. Get access and be coached by me and my team and level up your health, career, and life all for less than a dollar a day. Go to femalebiohacker.com or click the link below to get started. And I'll see you on the inside. If we can touch on fasting, because you were mentioning that often women in their in their 40s, sorry, mm. probably do need less carbohydrates than they've been used to eating. Yeah. But fasting, um, so there's kind of going lower carb or slash ketogenic, and then there's also fasting which can in itself if you're pushing too much and you're fasting for too long um, and also exclusionary diets like the ketogenic can cause their own hormone disruptions i'm curious what you found in terms of your own practice um, whether there's sort of an ideal wind fasting period and an ideal sort of diet type for individuals as they transition through this stage yeah, in my analysis, it really depends on whether there's insulin resistance or not. So women who don't have insulin resistance, who are maybe already borderline under eating, who are very active, I think they need to be careful because if they start fasting or you know, restricting their diet too much, they're, they're not going to have the nutrition they need. The other difference is younger women. I know that's not what we're talking about today, but I just have to kind of get that, make this point that women under 35 their hormonal system, especially if they're under 30, especially if they're under 25, their hormonal system, female hormonal system is a lot more sensitive to food signals and young women can lose their periods to a low carb diet or keto diet. So I just want to say that outright. I think my experience is that that's less likely to happen to women in their forties, although it can happen if with a severe, you know, extreme keto diet, the, the balance is about, you know, the benefits of fasting and the benefits of lower carb versus stress hormones, right? So it's about with my patients, it's like you have the goal is to feel well. So if some part of it doesn't feel well, then it's not working. And the marker, the barometer is sleep. Mm. So what I find is some women, if they go too low carb, especially low carb in the evening, they don't sleep. And you know, I think I've put myself in that category. Like, I think if I don't have some starch mm. with the evening meal, I I don't sleep as well. So that's where we can start to harness some of this. So my the advice I give in the book and with my patients is to maybe try to extend the the benefits of the natural overnight fast of your sleep by having a lower carb breakfast. Get get your protein, get some nutrition that you need by hopefully 10 a.m. because that signals circadian rhythm, which is also very important for all of this. And then potentially don't come in with, you know, starch until kind of later in the day. But at some point, most women are going to need something. I think just for, it's the, the calming effect of starch, maybe for gut microbiome as well. All that said, I'm not anti the keto diet. I'm really not. So if there's someone who has severe insulin resistance and just feels well, 
you know, going full keto for at least for, you know, several months. I have no problem with that, but it's always, I never lose sight of the marker that it should feel good and you should be sleeping. And if that's not happening, then something's wrong. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think that is the the best marker. And I'm absolutely the same as you. I find that carbohydrates, a small amount in the evening, definitely contribute to better sleep. And I just, there's a sense of calm that coupled with magnesium, which I want to come on to, because you talk about magnesium being very important and also taurine as well. Um, You mentioned in the book, I think that's worth talking about here. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Let's stay on the topic of keto a little bit, because that will lead us into the magnesium and taurine. Just for anyone listening who doesn't already know this, it's not like we have, it's not like there's a a keto diet or the non-keto diet, right? Like we, we would naturally go in and out of nutritional ketosis all the time, like, you know, overnight or with exercise or a little bit of fasting. So that's cultivating metabolic flexibility. I guess what I'm saying is you don't, you don't, to get the benefits of ketosis, you don't have to be in ketosis all the time, Mm. right? Like you can be in ketosis some of the time (laughs) overnight or after a big, after a big walk or something, but then you come out of it and that's okay. I mean, that's still a healthy thing to have done that. So does I say that because certainly what I've seen with some of my patients is it feels like it's very much all or nothing. Like I'll have patients tell me, oh, I tried keto for a while, but then I didn't feel good. So I just went back to eating everything, like including desserts. And like, I'm just like, wow. So there was no, for them, there was no middle ground, right? It was just all one or extreme nothing. to the other. Yeah. So there's that. And then to answer your question about magnesium and taurine, that nutrient duo improves insulin sensitivity. I perhaps could have made that a little bit more clear in the book. I mean, it has many benefits, which is why I talked about it multiple times in different ways, but fundamentally for our conversation right now, magnesium and taurine support the mitochondria, which as you know, are the powerhouses in the cell, the little parts of the cell that um, turn glucose or ketones into energy and magnesium and taurine help with that. They also both directly calm the nervous system, which is extremely helpful for sleep, for anxiety, for migraines. Yeah. And what have you found in terms of the magnesium? Is that something that you would recommend having twice a day, morning and evening, or just in the evening? What have you found works best there? Yeah, I think it's it's flexible. It's all different ways. I mean, myself personally, and using with usually with my patients, I have make up what we can access in Australia and New Zealand quite easily are these gorgeous powders that have both magnesium glycinate and taurine and a few activated B vitamins. And they're just, they're really quite nice. So myself, I will have that usually at about four or five o'clock. In fact, I would normally be having it now, but I'm talking to you instead. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's kind of a pre dinner, like just to relax. So that's one, that's why I use it. Some of my patients prefer to take magnesium closer to bedtime because they find it actually directly promotes sleep. I find is in terms of sleep, I find the main thing is just to get the nervous system calming down several hours before sleep. And then that together with you know everything that helps to, to promote good sleep. Yeah, for sure. And, um, it's really interesting when you look at uh, like metabolic flexibility, because yes. I think it's funny, like I learned so much from my children full stop, but mm-hmm. they just naturally do this so well. You know, they, yeah. they stop eating in the evening, they eat a relatively early dinner, they go to bed, 
They're completely yeah. fasted overnight. They wake up. They just want to kind of play. Then they break their fast, have breakfast. They have mini fasts between meals, which yeah. I always encourage people yeah. I see to do. Because some people, as you say, are eating constantly. And they're kind of almost absorbed in other things. And they're constantly cycling between, you know, burning more ketones, then burning more glucose. And I just think we can learn a lot from them. And children as young as five are very naturally doing a 12 to 14 hour overnight fast without any problems. It's true. Um, and it, yeah, it shouldn't be hard. It's the other message too, like if you're metabolically healthy and if you've had enough protein, a lot of it comes down to that. Mm. You, the fasting is not, it's not a hardship. Like you won't feel hungry. So I think some people have this idea that it's going to, okay, this is this thing you have to endure. It's going to be hard, but no, it should be like, you're not actually hungry until it comes around time to eat again. And then you have a very satiating meal with lots of protein, and then you're not going to be hungry for four or five hours. That's a, that's the normal, that's you know, what the normal human body would do. Yeah, so. that's absolutely true. And um, the, the protein is so effective for helping increase yes. that muscle mass, which we're naturally losing, isn't it? Um, and it's very satiating as well. It's our primary yes. appetite. Do you know that I talk about it in the book a little bit? Do you know the thing? It's called the protein leverage hypothesis, which is this idea that because protein is our main appetite, we will keep eating until we get enough protein. So whether and just eating everything, like it's looking so we can harness that, we can work that. Thank you for listening to today's show and for your interest in health optimization for high performance. If you're new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that you can get a free health score and report complete with personalized recommendations on how to optimize your sleep, nutrition, fitness, and resilience in the top link in the show notes below. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Links to everything we talked about are also in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe for more.